and welcome to Off Grid with me, Dave. And me, Void. Hello. Yes, it's the Not Really About Crosswords podcast. Now, before each episode, we've solved a cryptic crossword and we've each picked an interesting word among the answers to talk about and a clue that we liked, which we'll explain later on. If you fancy solving the crossword that we did, so you can uh, solve along or think along with it, we have looked at Philistine's puzzle number 28688 from The Guardian on Wednesday the 23rd of February 2022. And there's a link to that in the show notes. So stop the pod and go and solve it if you fancy. But if you're not into crosswords, don't panic. Just sit back and listen to us whittering on about three of the clues, but mostly about some other stuff. And what else will we have? Well, we'll also have a short quiz, as always, inspired by stuff in the puzzle. And you can't have a quiz without uh, general knowledge. Hello, General. Are you there and how are you? I'm really well and it's good to be back. Fantastic. Right, we told you we would tell you our favourite clues, so we'll read them out to you now and we'll come back to them later to explain how they work. Don't panic if you're not a solver. So, General, would you like to read out your favourite clue to us, please? Sure. It's 14 across and the clue is Rogue Nation, if kept under threat, to 10. And Dave? And my choice was 26 across, which says, One reason to visit the National Gallery would be to write music! Exclamation mark. And that's six letters. What about yours? And I went for 20 down. Reckless to ignore Malaysia's capital for a break. Six letters. And as I say, we'll come back to those later. You can have a think about them if you like. But now, General, you have picked a word out of the puzzle to have a chat about, right? Yes. So the word that I've picked is the last across word, and it is Pyrenees. Mm -hmm. And the reason I've chosen that, um, the reason that that felt relative to me was that I actually live in Australia as you may not have known, but uh, I live on a highway called the Pyrenees Highway. Uh-huh. Oh. And that, yeah, and that highway, I sort of live at the beginning and this highway snakes its way all the way down to the Pyrenees Ranges. So this is in the state of Victoria. And I've never actually been there. It's not the longest highway, but it got me thinking about our tendency down here just to name things after things that already exist elsewhere. There's not a lot of creativity in, in how we name our places. And, and in fact... Mostly European places. That, well, that's right. Yeah, there's, there is mostly, mostly European places. And I would say it, it almost feels like every second town is just plucked from the map somewhere else. And I just got to thinking what, what the reasons for that is. Obviously, there was a lot of homesickness when this town, this place was colonised, and I think there was an element of that, people naming places after their hometowns or, or places they'd been. But then, of course, yeah. there's sur- surnames which crop up, and sometimes towns are named after people, which also explains why there would be multiple places called the same thing. But just in, in the case of the Pyrenees Ranges, you know, they, they just don't compare to the original. <laughs> They're much smaller. Yeah, I didn't know there was a Pyrenees down, down under. I only need the European one. Yeah, I mean, we've also got our own Alps as well. The Australian Alps. 
And uh, we do get a lot of sn- snow up there, actually, which is, is a quite a good place to go and ski. But I've just been looking over at the maps around here and just sort of getting a sense of, yeah, how common it is for all of our place names to be non-original in terms of their branding, I suppose. I guess we do, uh, over here, we, we'll be familiar with an Australian saying something like, oh, yeah, and then I drove down the road to Woolamaroo and, <laughs> you know, places with yeah. Aboriginal sounding names, which to a European ear initially sound a bit funny, but you you get used to them. Well, yeah. But, you know, I, I guess the European sounding names will sound funny to uh, an Indigenous Australian. Yeah, that's right. And actually, there's about three, I, I would say there's probably three ways that towns get named here. They're either the Indigenous word for the local area or local feature. You know, and you've got Wangaratta, Wollongong, yeah, Woolloomooloo, uh, those sort of cool names. And then you've got place names that are named after other places in other countries. And then mm-hmm. occasionally we come up with something original. Uh, but I'm not sure what the breakdown of percentages are, but it seems to be a bit of a three-way split. But just looking around our coast, around Melbourne, it's just like every town is just plucked off the the atlas from Europe. You know, we've got Brighton, Sandringham, Hastings, Rye, Cheltenham, Chelsea, Mentone, Blairgarry. These are all places I've looked up uh, that are just in Scotland and England and Wales and We've even got a we got a Sorrento in there as well, but oh right, yeah. It's just really interesting to to just think of the mindset that that came to to lead those names. Yeah, I wonder as as someone who lives in uh, the country with the places named after places from other countries, if you go and visit Australian Brighton, or if you think about Australian Brighton, will you in your mind know whereabouts the original Brighton is to a greater degree than it's in England? No, that's right. I actually, I sort of was always of the assumption that these correlated spatially to how they appeared on the English map, but they just don't. They're plucked from all over the place. And in fact, you know, uh, Chelsea, uh, there's, there's a seaside town called Chelsea down here, but but the Chel- your Chelsea's not by the beach, is it? it it's by the Thames. <laughs> right. So there's no sea, so to speak. Um so, yeah, it was interesting to see this random selection all cobbled together along our, our bay. But, yeah, so it was it was an interesting rabbit hole to go down for myself because it's something I've wondered for a while as to whether these towns line up in England as well as they do down here, but they just don't. There's a Brighton in no. Sydney as well. So it just is a trend for settlers here to, to pick names that obviously had sentimental meaning to them. And, and I also should say yeah, that... The, reflect their origins. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think I wanted to say that the the highest peak in the Pyrenees down here is called <laughs> Ben Nevis. <laughs> Just to oh, confuse geographers, yeah. That's all kinds of wrong. You were, you were saying that sometimes you guys come up with original place names. And that made me think, don't you have the great sandy desert and the snowy mountains out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Original. <laughs> exactly. We've also got Mount Disappointment, which is a classic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's – well, that's the thing. For, 
for original names, it's generally just very basic. What does is, what is this place look like? What can we see? Okay, name it that. And I mean, nowadays, of course, when marketers are coming up with names for new estates, they can get very flowery and you know, use very brandy marketing language, I guess. Well, that's not a new thing. Greenland got its name that way, didn't it? <laughs> to try and persuade people to colonise it? Yeah, exactly. Because it isn't green. It's like, it's a trick. Come and see this Greenland. And you go there and you go, it's not green, it's grey and white. Yeah, that, that's, that was right. That's the original misnamer. New estate marketing. Yeah. <laughs> Would you call that a misnomer or a, a what would it be, a, a disnomer? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Maps are great to to just explore and, and pour at and just go, yeah. what? what is that, that doing there? That's right. And I there was a few interesting things that came out of it. Like I, we have an island called Phillip Island and the main town is called Cows, C-O-W-E-S. Okay. And I'm like, oh, is that an original name? And turns out there's a there's a town called Cows on the Isle of Man. So they've gone, oh, oh yeah, this is is that right? Isle of Wight. <laughs> You're the wrong Isle there. It's the Isle of Wight. Yeah, <laughs> you <Yeah>. saved yourself. <laughs> yeah, Isle of Wight. That's right. Is that a white island? It's it's spelled W I G H T. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, and man is, is spelled with a W. Is a, one N, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Is there a man there? I mean, it, it has got chalk cliffs, so bits of it are white, yeah. yeah. But I don't know why it's named that, because white in that spelling, that's an old name for a type of ghost or phantom, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I assume yeah. that they yeah. spelt it wrong, but they meant, you know, they meant W-H-I-T-E. It was just a mistake. I don't know, yeah. Okay, let's revisit some of those favourite clues. Uh, if you remember, my choice was... One reason to visit the National Gallery would be to write music, exclamation mark, six letters. It was quite a long clue for a short word, admittedly, but a very natural-sounding sentence. This was a sort of double definition, where one definition was a standard one, that's the to-write-music bit, and the other was a sort of cryptic definition, or a simple pun, really, in that one reason to visit the National Gallery would be... If your other choice of famous art exhibition venue was unavailable or mysteriously missing and there was no Tate. So to write music is to no Tate. A blooming silly gag, really. I did groan at that one. Yeah. Uh, now, talking of blooming, oh, God, what an awful link. Void, I think you had a bloomer to talk about. Yeah, I picked the word orchid from the grid, which is not a Liverpudlian term of endearment. Orchid. But a flower. I think it's reasonably well known that orchid comes from the word meaning testicle in Greek and the plant being called that because of the shape of its tuber. Mm-hmm. But that's not where I'm going. Orchid, for me, naturally brought to mind the species Myrmecophilia humboldtii, native to Venezuela and the ABC islands, which, of course, we all knew. Another thing named after Humboldt, as well as the old penguins. Same fella, I presume. I I, I don't know why you think that. I mean, quite clearly it's named after Ant-Man. Because in the Iliad, Achilles' warriors were the Myrmidons. Okay. The Ant-Men. 
so named because they were descended from a lady who was, quote, visited by Zeus in the form of an ant. That is the sort of thing he, that he used to. to do. Yeah, yeah. A large and ant or a small ant? ant. Yeah. Ooh, I'd have to look that up. I, I should what's, have checked. What's the largest ant? Adamant? The elephant. <laughs> hey. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, but this this plant has a symbiotic relationship with ants, so hence the uh, Myrmacophilia ant loving part of its name. But okay. yes, the second part of the name it comes from Alexander Humboldt, who is my real subject today. You've heard of him? No. Well, if he's the penguin guy, I have, yes. <laughs> Not everyone has heard of him these days, but in his day, he was incredibly famous. And to give you an idea of that, I'd like to read an extract from this book, which I'm holding up to camera. The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World by Andrea Wolfe, which I've been reading. And I hardly recommend it. It's excellent. On 14th of September, 1869, 100 years after his birth, Alexander von Humboldt's centennial was celebrated across the world. There were parties in Europe, Africa and Australia, as well as the Americas. In Melbourne and Adelaide, people came together to listen to speeches in honour of Humboldt, as did groups in Buenos Aires and Mexico City. There were festivities in Moscow, where Humboldt was called the Shakespeare of the Sciences, and in Alexandria and Egypt, where guests partied under a sky illuminated with fireworks. The greatest commemorations were in the United States, where from San Francisco to Philadelphia and from Chicago to Charleston, the nation saw street parties, sumptuous dinners and concerts. In Cleveland, some 8,000 people took to the streets, and in Syracuse, another 15,000 joined a march that was more than a mile long. President Ulysses S. Grant attended the Humboldt celebrations in Pittsburgh together with 10,000 revelers who brought the city to a standstill. In New York City, the cobbled streets were lined with flags, City Hall was veiled in banners, and entire houses had vanished behind huge posters bearing Humboldt's face. Even the ships sailing by out on the Hudson River were garlanded in colourful bunting. In the morning, thousands of people followed 10 music bands marching from the Bowery and along Broadway to Central Park to honour a man whose fame no nation can claim, as the New York Times front page reported. I'll, I'll stop there. There's loads more. But basically, the idea is he was incredibly famous. He hung out with Goethe, Schiller, Thomas Jefferson, Joseph Banks, who was the president of the Royal Society, and the lead singer of the forgotten rock band Godlike Bass. But I may have crossed the streams there. <laughs> and... He was even negotiating with Napoleon on behalf of Prussia for a while. Apparently, Napoleon didn't like him. And Banks was also a bit of a rock star himself, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Banks was incredibly famous. Yeah, yeah. he was a hugely famous scientist at the time. Uh, we're talking late 18th, early 19th century. Yeah. Humboldt made what was probably the first in-depth scientific expedition to South America, where he climbed mountains mapped rivers and collected loads of biological samples and rock samples to send back to Europe. And it's Humboldt's ideas on, on botany and biology and ecology and geology all being irrevocably interconnected, which became hugely influential. You wouldn't have 
Charles Darwin's On the Origin of the Species Without Humboldt, for example. And it was him who brought us the idea of ecological zones. So, for example, you know, alpine, tropical, desert, as having zones that had similar flora and fauna wherever they were throughout the world. So rather than just local to Europe or Southern Africa or wherever, it was the ecological zone that was the important factor deciding right. what, uh, what went on there. Uh, his writings influenced Wordsworth and Thoreau and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, among others, and Simon Bolivar, who you've probably heard of. He was actually inspired by Humboldt's descriptions of South America to go on and lead his revolution against the Spanish colonials there. Mm. And you were talking, General, about place names earlier. Well, I read in Andrew Wolf's book that there are more places in the world named after Humboldt than any other person, which is pretty amazing. That's a great legacy. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned geology. Mm -hmm. Was, uh, I think, contribution to development of the idea of plate tectonics? Yeah. I'm only halfway through the book, but I have right. just got past the bit where he meets up with Charles Lyell who was hugely influential in, in forming those ideas and, yeah, humble influenced him as well. So, yeah, yeah I, I was connects. just thinking as a link to um, our European Pyrenees, which formed as a result of plate tectonics because it's the uh, the Iberian plate smashing into the Eurasian one that, uh, that, yeah. that formed those. Yeah, he was, uh, I would say, an exemplar of the value of curiosity. Um, mm. He was a polymathid study, any subject he he fancied, and in depth usually, and one hell of an influencer, perhaps the original influencer. It's a shame that he's not so well known these days then, isn't it? His penguin and his current are probably more famous than he is. Mm. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, I, I recommend that book, and um, I hadn't even got to his trip to Russia yet, so I look forward to reading that. Oh. General, do you want to tell us how your favourite clue works, please? Sure. So my favourite clue, which gave me a smile as for reasons that I'll explain, was 14 across, rogue nation if kept under threat, 210. And it's an anagram clue. You're anagramming nation if kept, and the answer means under threat, which is at knife point. And the reason I smiled when I read this one was just because there's a shopping centre sort of close to where I live, which is in a bit of a traditionally rough area and it's called High Point Shopping Centre <laughs> and everyone calls it Knife Point Shopping Centre and so you'll get, you'll just get people going, oh, oh, I just spent Christmas Eve shopping at Knife Point, you know, it was just awful <laughs> and it's just entered the lingo and um, it's just quite funny how we've nicknamed it that. So not so much the clue, I mean the clue was I thought very elegant and sort of timely as well with uh, all the international drama over and with a rogue nation that we're, <laughs> we're experiencing right now. But yeah, I just thought that was another sort of another place name joke. Yeah. That was a nice one. Yeah. Dave, what would you like to wax lyrical about? Okay. Well, we've got the word haiku at 12 across. And since you and I struggled somewhat with the structure of the sonnet in the last episode, when, uh, <laughs> when the general asked us about the rhyme scheme and what have you, I thought I'd 
try and get on top of some other maybe shorter verse forms as prompted by haiku in the grid. It's one of those things that English language writers think, oh, I know what that is, that's very simple, and go on to mangle someone else's culture. <laughs> I think we tend to assume, oh, yeah, three lines, five syllables, then seven, then five, job done. Right. But to steal the catchphrase of Dr. Ben Goldacre, I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> Firstly, that 575 structure uh, relates not really to syllables as we think of them, but to the on, which is a Japanese concept of a unit of sound. And while the nearest translation, I suppose, is syllable, it's perhaps closer to a phoneme. Um, so it's a more often a smaller unit of sound. Okay. And so that means that haikus in the original Japanese tend to be shorter than those in English. And being shorter, the three phrases tend to be set on a single line rather than in three separate lines, as we would do. Okay. But secondly, that 575 structure isn't really the most important attribute anyway. What's more important is what the verse contains. So from my understanding, from what I've been reading, traditionally it's supposed to express a sense of feeling or imagination about the natural world and there'd normally be a word referring to the season of the year or at the very least to the atmosphere or the weather. And at the end of either the first or the second phrase, there is a kireji, which is literally a fissure or a cut. And it's something like the volta in a Petrarchan sonnet. So it's marking a pause and a change in thought or mood. Oh, okay. Now, in the Japanese haiku, there's an actual choice of word and in English, we don't really have a way of doing that, so we would fall back on punctuation. We'd put in a dash or an ellipsis to represent the kind of change. Anyway, uh, also wordplay and punning, which we love in crossword land, but they're kind of frowned on a bit in serious poetry in English. At any rate, not humorous verse, but it's fine in Japanese, apparently. But that does bring me on to a very English thing not content with bastardizing another culture's traditional forms we then go on to mash them up with our own have you heard of the limeraiku <laughs> i have not i have now <laughs> you have now this is a very bizarre frankenstein's creature of a verse form that tries to fit the five a a b b a rhymes of the limerick yeah. And maybe the style of the limerick, which often means, you know, bawdy humour, into the 575 syllable three line structure of the English language version of the haiku. Right. It appears to have been the creation of a chap called Ted Pauker, about whom I can find out almost nothing, apart from the fact that he invented the limericku. It's like, who are you? <laughs> hiding there in are, shame? Hiding in shame, very possibly, yeah. There are a handful of examples online and in some of my numerous limerick books, but really not all that many. As an example, here's one of the few that are clean enough to broadcast. Uh, this is by someone called W.S. Brownlee. Little Miss Muffet said, stuff it, no go. And so, hands off my tuffet. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> that, that's quite neat. So I thought I'd have a go. Um, <laughs> Dave... Dwelt in a grave, asked why, 
said, think when I die of how much I'll save. <laughs> Very good. When when you first explained the, the, the mashup concept, I thought, but that's not going to work, is it? There's, there's too much of one to fit into too little of the other. But yeah, yeah, you have to abandon the line length from the from the limerick. Right. Yeah. So just just keep the rhymes and stick them in where you can fit them. Right. On the other hand, there is a purely English form, nice and short. Is the Clary Hue? Are we all familiar with the Clary Hue? Is that that's the four line one? that always has a very disappointing last line. Is that the one? Well, it's it's definitely a four-liner. I don't know whether the last line is necessarily disappointing. This is this is named after Edmund Clary Hugh Bentley, 1875 to 1956, the creator of the form. Uh, he was at one time chief leader writer for the Daily Telegraph. So this one, it's it's two rhyming couplets, typically biographical in nature. It introduces the subject in the first line. And the four lines are of deliberately uneven length. Oh, okay. Yes, or often the rhymes are strained. <laughs> so the most famous example, I think, the one that people are most familiar with is Sir Christopher Wren said, I'm going to dine with some men. If anybody calls, say I'm designing St Paul's. I've remembered what I was thinking of and why I was thinking about the disappointing last line. Right. Uh, I was getting muddled up with... Is it Edward Lear's limericks, where the last oh, line yes. always tend to be very similar to the first line? Yes, yeah, that's, that's right. That's not yeah. a clarity. Yeah. No. So I've just got a couple of others. So we've got a rather a fun one. Uh, the people of Spain think Cervantes equal to half a dozen Dantes, an opinion resented most bitterly by the people of Italy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right, so again, I thought, right, let's have a go. In that spirit, I came up with our general knowledge. Did very well at college, though he did get quite thirsty at university. (laughs) I did. Nice. Um, That's great. I've never thought that, you know, you can just invent a new poem type and say, this is a new type of poem, and it's called, you know, the general knowledge It's named after me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Anyway, Void, probably time for a break from all that. So why not give us the explanation for the last of today's clues? Okay, yeah, I picked my favourite clue, 20 down. Reckless to ignore Malaysia's capital for a break. Now, I read this clue and I passed it and thought, okay, I know how this works. Malaysia's capital, that's going to be the letter M, isn't it? And (laughs) to ignore is going to be a deletion, right? Okay, and you've got four in there and that usually works out as being wordplay for definition so the definition is going to be a break we're going to get a word that means a break by taking a word that means reckless a seven letter word that means reckless taking an m out of it to leave us a six letter (laughs) word to mean a break i couldn't solve this clue for quite a while i was gonna say Um, how did you get on with that yeah Yeah. it was my last one in and i was stuck on it and when you are stuck on a clue, I think you usually have to go, right, okay, let's try and look at it from another way there. Let's abandon the principles I've applied and try and find something else. So um, mm. I thought, well, Malaysia's capital has got to be a, an M, hasn't it? I mean, it can't be Kuala Lumpur, can it? Because, you know, it's only a six-letter word. And, oh, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> People abbreviate 
Kuala Lumpur to KL, don't they? It's commonly called KL. So we weren't looking for a word that means reckless. We were just looking for the word reckless, and we had to ignore the KL in the middle of it, which gives us recess for a break. So although the clue annoyed me because I couldn't get it for a long time, (laughs) in the end, it was my favourite clue because it fooled me. And it's one of those things that's almost like the hidden word clues in the sense that the letters for your answer are pretty much staring you in the face. Yeah. Okay, well, now it's time for the general knowledge quiz. And I've put together a few questions that were inspired by the puzzle we solved. So the first question is sort of related to place names, as we were talking about earlier. And the question is, what do the Mississippi River, Lake Chad, and the Sahara Desert have in common? The Mississippi River, the Sahara Desert, and Lake Chad. Oh, I could make a guess. Yeah, I think I've, I think I've cottoned onto it. Um, yeah. Now, would it be appropriate that both me and Dave have worked out the answer? Because we could maybe call that a, a pair. Of answers, would that be relevant here? Yeah, it would. And uh, I actually, I thought you'd get this one. I just, and I was hoping you would get it. So, yeah, I think you're on the right track there. Would you like to? Sahara means desert, and Chad means lake, and Mississippi yeah. means river. Yeah, Mississippi means I think great river. Uh, it translates to something like that. So, they're all tautological place names, which is is a rather common outcome in places that are settled that already have existing names. So, yeah, I found that quite interesting. Because you get the settlers coming in and saying to the natives, what's that place called? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And they say, Yucatan. They call it Yucatan, and Yucatan means I don't know or something. (laughs) That's the old joke about the kangaroo, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, the famous one of that is Torpenhow Hill, uh, which is here in, in England, in Cumbria, I think, and and it says the same thing four times. I think Tor and Penn and How all mean hill. Yeah, that certainly came yeah. up in my research, and uh, it's, it's a really interesting case. Some people think that uh, it's been debunked, but I, I don't all right. I think that it's actually, I don't know, I think there's enough there to say that it that's what happens, that, that it was just four subsequent translations. Yeah, I think the main reason that people say it's debunked is they say, well, it's not really much of a hill, is it? So it's pretty flat. <laughs> okay, so yeah. I've got another question for you. Mm-hmm. And this sort of relates to the Australian Alps. But uh, what type of animal is known as a brumby? Brumby. Brumby. Mm. I mean, if it was an English animal, you might think it was one that was native to Birmingham. <laughs> because... The nickname for Birmingham is Brum. But uh, what type of animal is Brumby? Is it is it a fictional animal or a real animal? It's a real animal. Okay. You've, you've definitely seen one before. You've probably even touched one. Okay, and it's and you mentioned the Alps, so it's some sort of mountain animal. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's an Australian colloquialism. But I wasn't sure if if this word was sort of broadly known outside our country. But um, since there's a bit of uh, a few blank stares here, the, an- the answer is <laughs> wild, wild horse. It's, it's what we okay. call a wild horse. And in fact, a, a horse that's unbroken. 
and we have quite a lot of these animals living in up in the mountains in Australia from the wild colonial days there are a large population of wild horses that are known as brumbies that essentially now are endemic and there's a big debate around should they be treated as such should should they be treated as a pest because they do do a lot of damage or have they been around long enough that you know they they belong yeah and you know everyone loves horses so the idea of culling them is is not very popular either hmm. so it's quite a big issue in in australia yeah i've not heard of a, a brumby as a horse I, i've heard it as a surname so i wonder if somehow that's do you know why they are called brumbies no that would be quite useful information to bring to the table here but i don't know that yeah. i do know that there is it is a surname um we had a, a premier of our state that was called john brumby so there seems to be some connection there but um yeah perhaps some uh, settler or horse dealer who let some of his stock run wild <laughs> and they got named after him maybe. yeah that's probably it with with me and my access to the oed we've got the that wonderful well-known phrase origin unknown <laughs> Perfect. Everybody's favourite. <laughs> oh. And a little bit of a change of theme here. This question actually popped up to me because I was looking at three down in the puzzle, etiquette. And I was mm-hmm. thinking about modern etiquette in text messaging and how there seems okay. to be quite okay. a few generational debates around etiquette in text messages, particularly around the full stop. Because apparently Gen Z finds full stops in text messages quite distressing because it suggests aggression <laughs> and rudeness. Um, have you heard this I before? I mean, to some of us, it just suggests a, a complete sentence, surely. Yeah. Clarity <laughs> of meaning. <laughs> That's right. Well, there's been numerous studies suggesting that, yeah, don't use full stops in texts if you're texting a teenager because they will find it offensive. <laughs> And I mean, I'm, I'm nearly 40, but uh, I sort of get what they mean. Occasionally a full stop at an end of a text when it doesn't need to be there just does seem a bit jarring. So that I'll, I'll leave your listeners to decide if that's something they agree with, but um, it is a wi- widely reported phenomenon. Uh, so the question is, what was the most widely used emoji of 2021 according to the Unicode Consortium. Ah, my favourite people. (laughs) So 2021, you would perhaps guess it might be something pandemic-related. So like the face with a mask on it or something like that. (laughs) Oh, I was just wondering if it might be a syringe, as in I've had my jab. Well, I'm sure the syringe did have an uptick in 2021, but no, it's more more in the, the normal emoji space so you know one that you would use a lot one that i would use a lot my mum certainly uses a lot that sort of thing but that's still you know more popular than sort of the the contemporary theme ones yeah so one of your regular smileys or it's it's variants you'd be very familiar with it it's a regular smiley it is the laugh cry the the laugh cry emoji is which it's not one that i would use the most i don't think but it it's not surprising Otherwise known as the face with tears of joy, which is is nice. Oh, People are still joy. using that. <laughs> yeah, I always thought of it more as a yeah, laugh cry, but the the official name I think is face with tears of joy. 
I was going to say, I think the Unicode's official names for a lot of the emojis doesn't correlate particularly well with how the general populace um, use them. Yeah, if I'm using it, I'm generally saying, I'm smiling, but I'm crying inside. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only relieved that it wasn't the aubergine. I was driving yesterday, driving to work, and I received a text from my friend, so I told... Uh, I told Siri to read it to me and it was just like Mm -hmm. uh, your friend sent you a yellow box a green box a yellow box a yellow (laughs) box a green box (laughs) and it just went on on and on and on and uh, apparently wordle sharing is actually causing a lot of issue to people with accessibility issues when it comes to so for blind people who are trawling through twitter and want to, yeah, want to follow a Twitter feed. Be, yeah, uh, they've got a they've got a reader that vocalises the the text for them, and Wordle is just an absolute bane for them. So um, I experienced that yesterday. Yeah, I have to say, I have a muffle on the word Wordle on my Twitter feed. <laughs> yes, well, you've probably muffled a few of my tweets. <laughs> I don't, I don't tweet my score. I saw someone tweet about the uh, screen reader issue, and that actually made me change my behaviour. Because I did have, I can't remember what it was now, but I did have an emoji or two in my uh, screen name on Twitter for a while. But I, I took them out uh-huh. because of that. Plain text yeah. is king, I think. It's it's always the best way of getting your message across. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Because if you send someone three face with tears of joy emojis, then that's just going to be another probably 20 words to the text of someone who is getting it yeah. read to them. And I've also been trying to always remember to use alt text when I'm posting images on Twitter too, for the same reason, so that people with sight problems can uh, know what the image is about. Yep, certainly helps. Gosh, aren't we responsible folk? (laughs) (laughs) Right, once again at my back I hear Time's winged chariot hurrying near, so thanks for listening if you have been. Show notes will, as always, be available at offgrid.tlmb.net, along with an archive of our past episodes, so you new listeners can catch up. Um, Now, by the time of broadcast, I hope to have my March puzzle available at crossword.info forward slash skirwingle. And you can always still say hi to us on Twitter, where I'm similarly at skirwingle. And I'm at the void TLMB, and I will also have a new puzzle out by the time this episode is released. It's called Dark Affair, and you can find it on my blog, tlmb.net slash blog. Uh, General, do you have any recommendations this time around for the listener? Yes, I think the listener should follow LRXWord on Twitter for lots of entertaining content. And uh, yes, that's enough from me. But I'll see you next time. Thank you very much for helping us out, General Knowledge, again. No worries. It's been great to have you here. Right, we'll see you all in a fortnight, folks. Bye-bye. So, Bye. That was Off Grid. Thank you for listening once again. If you enjoyed it, do tell a friend. Rate us, review us. That'd be lovely. You know you want to. Yeah, we know you're not going to, but we have to ask you to anyway. <laughs> you know, that's how this works. It's just how it works. Thank you, Philistine, for the puzzle. Thank you to the Trudy for our theme tune. And hello to our new listener in Italy. Ciao, bella, buongiorno, dove il gelateria? Grazie mille. <laughs> and 
other cheesy races. <laughs> See you next time. Bye. Please tell me you're going to edit that out. <laughs> I liked it. Well, I mean, where's the ice cream parlour? It's an important <laughs> phrase to know.